It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So, uh, <clears throat> it's amazing that uh, this series is already at episode 38. I, have, I was sort of going through a little bit of mourning uh, this morning. That's a funny way of saying it, but realizing that this series is almost over, it's going to be very likely a 42-episode series. That's at least the, the schedule for it. And so I have to bring it in for a landing uh, here in the very near future. But personally, it's hard because once I know that I've, I've done, like when I did World War II, I know I can't just do it again immediately, right? I need to wait a little bit until everyone forgets that I did it, and then I do it again, right? Because I enjoyed World War II so much, and it was, again, the, a very similar thing when I came to the end of it. And uh, this one, I feel like I trimmed out so much. See, for those of you that aren't familiar with World War I, you think I've put way too much in, potentially. It's like, wow, he just keeps digging things up. When in actuality, I am skimming along the surface, and anyone that knows World War I is, feels robbed. It's like, he didn't even cover this. He didn't even talk about this. And there are so many things. Like, for instance, uh, one of the most poignant moments in World War I for me is a battle called Passchendaele. And... I haven't even touched on Passchendaele, and yet for me personally, it's probably one of the most impacting moments, but I don't know how to translate Passchendaele to a Daily Thunder audience in a manner that is edifying, unless I was teaching on hell. And I'm, I'm dead serious. That's what most people said, is that, uh, you know, sort of like I've been to hell, I was at Passchendaele. And that was, you know, sort of the famous phrase is that this was such a difficult situation. I mean, we've already talked about the horrors of World War I, at least at a, at a basic level, but at Passchendaele takes it to a whole nother level, uh, where it was pouring rain for days on end, and this is up in Belgium, and it's going to turn into like this quicksand-like uh, goopy substance of, of earth, and men and horses are going to start sinking in, and they can't get them out, and so they slowly just sink to death. I mean, it's one of the weirdest events in all history. I almost feel like the judgment of God is on the world at this time. And it's really hard to process as a man when you see this and you're putting yourself into this situation where your best friend is caught in the, in the muck and he's sinking and you cannot get him out. And if you try and help him, you get stuck too. And then you start going down with him. I mean, it's like, what do you do? How do you respond to the need around you? And not altogether different. I probably could weave it into a message of how we deal with the lost and dying world that we're in today. How do you engage with that world and not get caught in the world at the same time? Oh, that, that could have been a good twist to it. Now, just watch. I end up doing a message on Passchendaele. Uh, but it's not in the plans as of right now. But it's hard to sort of skim along the surface and then to know that I'm done with it and I can't just go back and say, okay, we're doing a message, you know, a series called Spiritual Lessons from World War I. And all of you are like, wait a minute, that sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, because it, it really is, I bond uh, to a certain time period of history and it's really uh, neat for me. This one is called Footprints of Destiny. That comes from a quote from Winston Churchill uh, talking about the exact time period that we're going to be in. Uh, and this is just a little clip from the quote that we're going to go into a greater uh, understanding of. But he said, in this unfolding of events, we discern the footprints of destiny. 
Now, actually, what he said is in this sequence, which he meant sequence of three major events in history in 1917, we discern the footprints of destiny. So that idea of the footprints of destiny, one of the things, Winston Churchill's a hard guy to figure out. You know, you don't quite know about where he stands with Jesus Christ, but he references providence a lot of the fact that this was God, this was divine, God was working in this situation. And I've spent a lot of time with Winston Churchill uh, from my study in World War II, and I went through his memoirs two to three times, and we're talking uh, thousands of pages, and I spent a lot of time with Winston, right? And uh, I'm convinced that Winston had the fear of God upon him. I'm not convinced that he had an intimate walk with Christ, but he seemed to have a general walk where he esteemed Christ as a savior. He esteemed the word of God as the word of God. And so it's interesting. It's like, I'm not sure how, how to follow this man because there are certain qualities in him that are like, yes, that's what I want to be like. So when we talk about the footprints of destiny, the way that history has oftentimes described it, like if you study American history, you're going to see this idea of providence. And the way that they describe God is as providence, like capital P, like it's a name for God, which is a very interesting way of describing God because of what that means in and of itself. Because what you have is the idea of provider woven into it. So pro, meaning ahead of time, and vision, meaning sight, right? So that God sees ahead of time what is needed or what is going to happen, and then he supplies an answer for it. And so providence, listen to this definition that I'm giving to providence, okay? There's a lot of ways we could describe it, but the God that authors, orchestrates, and directs the story. So what we have in World War I is we have a story, and it's, it's a grand story, it really is, and it's going to involve all the nations of the earth, basically. Not all, but most. And it is a, it's a tragedy for the most part, but you're also going to see triumph come out of this. You're going to see God still sustain that which is good and right, and that which is evil is going to be put down even though you're going to then see another evil rise up, and then you're going to see another good rise up and quash the evil. The Jews had a statement which is going to come out in World War I that they've repeated throughout, or I'm sorry, World War II, when the Jews start to become the center stage issue, uh, and that's in World War II, that they believe that every time an evil or a malignant power rises up to destroy them, that God raises up a hero to rescue them. And that's Jewish history. That's the way that they even describe it. And what they're going to look at is Winston Churchill is the hero that God is rising up, raising up at that time to rescue them. It's very interesting, especially when you recognize that Winston Churchill is going to grow up in a prominently Jewish community in uh, Great Britain, which is unusual. And then he is going to actually have his dad, some of his father's closest friends are Jewish, and they're going to care for him in certain situations when he's growing up. And so he has a soft spot for the Jewish people. And so when he sees Hitler coming against the Jews, he instinctively rises up, whereas a lot of people on earth are just like, well, you know what, who cares? But Winston Churchill cares. And it's interesting just to see God raising up this man and then putting him into position at the very time we need someone on earth who has that heart. And that's the providence uh, at work. That is God orchestrating a story. And so in World War I, we have that same dynamic where we have an aggressor. 
And that aggressor, you know, as Napoleon says, the Prussians were birthed from a cannonball, where we have this Prussian empire known as Germany that is new in its inception, 44 years old, it's actually a young country, is actually going to make its move, and it's going to make an aggressive move to stake claim to territory, to quiet those threats around it, and to expand the borders of its culture, which it felt, Germany felt at the time, was superior to the cultures around it, or to the nations around it. And as a result, we see in World War I a very miniature version of World War II, where World War II, when we see Hitler, we see him doing that on steroids, where he's basically saying there is a certain race, it's called the Aryan race, that is superior to all other races, and all inferior races should be wiped out. And it was the extension, the full manifestation of survival of the fittest, or evolution. And so... In World War I, we have a miniature version of that. And we see this storyline where that ideology begins to creep into the world and it begins to sort of set forth its talons and then we see good rise up to push it back. And the same is going to happen in World War II. It is interesting to watch how that has worked throughout history. So if we talk about this grand storyteller, Providence, Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If you were to think about God as an author, which uh, Leslie's one of our first books was called When God Writes Your Love Story. We, we liken God to a capital A author. And so this goes very deep in my heritage, right? Of understanding that it's God that is actually writing a story. And when you recognize that even your individual story, the term author that is going to be used here is a very unique one, but he's the starter package. He's the initiator of it. And so the fact that he's the author and finisher should give you a certain sense of rest. It's a statement of providence that God is overseeing your life and he is caretaking to bring you unto himself and then also to bring you through this grand battle. And that is an amazing thought to realize that you have a God who cares about every little detail. The power of the author. He is able to turn every single difficulty into an amazing triumph. So this is just the principle of being an author. Now, I am an author, but I, I mainly have written uh, nonfiction, all right? And so when you're writing nonfiction, it's not as fun as writing uh, fiction. You know why? Because in nonfiction, you are bound to what has actually happened. You know, when you're quoting, you have to get all the quotes accurate. You have to uh, make sure you source them correctly. It's a lot of work to write uh, nonfiction. Whereas fiction, you can invent your own quotes. You can make up your own characters. I mean, it's a lot of fun. And so Hudson and I worked on a, uh, a fiction work over the last year, and it was a lot of fun for us. But here's what's interesting. is one of the things we were constantly doing with our characters, these poor characters, right? Uh, so we have these, this cast of characters that we love and we care about and we laugh at and we have a lot of fun with them, and then we stick them in crisis and trial. I mean, can you believe we would do that to our characters? But as an author, it's like you stick your character into this impossible situation and then watch how they respond to it. And then you go, no, no, don't worry, character. Your author is in total control here. And so then the author gets them out of that impossible situation. And that's what every great story is made of. It's an author or st sticking their characters in impossible situations, difficulties, trials, challenges, and then bringing victory out of it. And that is a very satisfying story. When you, if, if your character never had any difficulty, it would be very boring. But when a character has challenge and trial, 
then seeing them overcome that is part of what makes a story a great story. So here's Psalm 139. Now, uh, I have a good friend named Aaron Burns that loves to teach on this as a uh, movie uh, maker. And he talks about being like a director or a producer of a movie. And he always goes to Psalm 139. So I figure that could be a good place for us to go to, of just like recognizing that God being like the movie director or the author, however you would best see it, and recognize that he knows his characters and he knows what's going on inside of them. And if you were to ask me or Hudson about any of our characters, we could tell you all about them, right? We could tell you what they think. We could tell you how they'd handle this situation. It's like, if you put them in this situation, how would they respond? And we could probably give you a quote of what they would say. In other words, that's how well we know our characters, right? And it's interesting to think that we are, I mean, to call us God's characters is a weird statement, right? But we are his creation and he loves us. And he designed, he designed us for good. He designed us to win in the end. He designed us to actually finish the story with triumph. So let's listen to this. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, yet being unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. That is an amazing meditation of a character or an actor in a grand story. To recognize that God is over all and he cares for every little detail. The journey of the ram. I actually mentioned this in class the other day. But the ram that is going to be caught in the thicket in Genesis chapter 22. What a character in history this lamb is. I mean, you, or this ram. You could feel bad for it because it's going to end up dying on the altar, right? It's like, wow, that's, uh, that's a difficult end. However, it's, it's, it's a rather prestigious end for this ram, if you were to think about it, the significance that he is going to hold in history. But one of the things that I am always fascinated with about this ram is not just that it's there, it's that it's there at the perfect time. It's not there early or late. It is there exactly when it must be there. It is going to probably either rustle in the, the bush that it is caught in, or it's going to, you know, at the very time that Abraham needs to turn and see it. You see, Abraham, God is walking Abraham through a process to prove him. And this is like the first mention of love in the Bible. This is the first mention of obedience in the Bible. This is the first mention of worship in the Bible. So we are seeing God tell a story. And he is bringing Abraham to the end of himself where he needs to raise that knife and follow through in his faith, trusting that if God actually gave him this son and God intended 
his seed to be reckoned through this son that God would raise him from the dead, even if he kills him now. I mean, what a thing to walk through for Abraham. I mean, this is quite the challenge that he is being brought through. And then God is going to say, stop. And right at this moment, as God is doing this transaction in Abraham's soul, God has perfectly orchestrated the arrival of that ram and it getting caught in that thicket just nearby and it is perfectly suited to the situation. However, that ram, if you were to go back to its very birth and follow it, it is being led right there. And I always like to think about that in our life. And I always, I mean, I don't know that it would be a very exciting movie to watch the ram, you know, the movie of the ram uh, that is going to be caught in the thicket and it's like, it's born and we're like, okay, okay, it was born. All right, it's walking. Okay, it just learned to walk. It just learned to walk. However, all of those things, those fast factors are going to play into that ram getting lost, wandering and ending up right there. And I like that. And that is what is called providence where you recognize that that ram is not there on accident. That ram is there very much on purpose. Abraham and and Isaac are very much on purpose in that spot. And as Nathan, I'm sure, has told you, that that spot historically, geographically, is very critical in history because that Mount Moriah is going to translate into Golgotha as we move forward into the landscape of Jerusalem. And so when, when we see these things even in shadow in the in the old testament and we recognize them in a very personable way that god is leading us and he's leading factors in our life into the perfect situation for the perfect time genesis twenty two thirteen. then abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns so abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son and we do know that that is a picture of Jesus, who is going to be led in the fullness of time right into the spot where he could be offered instead of us. Romans 8, 28 is a great way of enunciating this concept, and that is, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So even in certain moments of the drama, when things get dark, you know, if you were to watch any movie or read any book which is sort of action adventure, you're gonna recognize that the author or the writer is purposely making you miserable. They're purposely making you uncomfortable so that they can fulfill and turn the story into something triumphant. They do that purposely. Isn't that terrible that they do that? That they are going to make the situation impossible at the very end of the movie. In other words, it has to reach its greatest depth of misery before the final resolution comes about. And in our life, we need to remember this principle of story, that God is telling a story in in and through us individually and in and through us corporately. And God will allow our life to go dark at times where we can't see, hey, God, where are you? What's going on here? Why does it seem like the enemy's winning? And God says, trust me, who's holding the pen right now? My God is in control, even in this circumstance, even though it looks dark, my God, who is the author, who is providence himself, will carry this story to a great conclusion. Just watch. And that's the confidence of the saints of God. 1914, the turning of Kluke's flank, the inconceivable twist to World War I. So 
This is before you guys arrive for your semester, so some of you are unfamiliar with the territory, but when Germany starts, they have a plan. It's called the Schlieffen Plan. They have 39 days to take Paris. And I mean, the clock is ticking, and it's working. The Germans are going to do it, and they're headed down towards Paris. Great Britain and their BEF, their British Expeditionary Force, and the French armies have been retreating for 12 days. It's called the Great Retreat. It's disaster for the Allies. The Allies are going to lose, and it's pretty obvious that Paris is going to be taken. And the most inexplicable thing happens. But von Kluck, who is the, first, the general of the First Army, who's going to take Paris, for whatever reason, it does make sense to the Germans if you were to look at it, but they thought that they could destroy the, the, the British and the French by turning their flank to the left and catching them quicker. Instead of not wasting their time on catching uh, Paris, they'll get the entire army to surrender instead of Paris to surrender. And so they turn their flank. Well, in battle, the number one thing you're after is the flank or the back of your army that you're fighting. So you want to outflank your opponent. They like turn their flank. They're the stronger opponent in this situation. They have the victory in hand and they're gonna turn their flank. And it just so happens that the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, which was ready to go home, they were tired of fighting this, they didn't wanna stand with France anymore, are situated in the perfect position to strike that flank. Well, that's weird, it's open to us? And Manory and his army are in Paris. There was an entire army that was situated in Paris, not because Joseph Joffre, who was the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, wanted it there, but because he was forced to have one there. And so these two armies are like set to actually strike the flank, and that's called the Battle of the Marne, and it's going to turn everything in World War I. It's inexplicable. There's no way of describing it. So here's Winston Churchill's comment on it. Assuredly, no human brain had conceived the design, nor had human hands set the pieces on the board. Several separate and discrepant series of events had flowed together. First, the man Gallieni is on the spot fixed in his fortress. He could not move toward the battle, so the mighty battle had been made to come to him. Second, the weapon had been placed in his hands, the army of Manory. It was given him for one purpose, the defense of Paris. He will use it for another a decisive maneuver in the field. It was given him against the wishes of Joffre. It will prove the means of Joffre's salvation. Third, the opportunity. Kluck, swinging forward in hot pursuit of, as he believed, the rooted British and demoralized French, will present his whole right flank and rear as he passes Paris to Gallieni and Manoury in his hand. Observe, not one of those factors would have counted without the other two. All are interdependent, all are here, and all are here now. Gallieni realized the position in a flash. I dare not believe it, he exclaimed. It is too good to be true. But it is true. Confirmation arrives hour by hour. He vibrates with enthusiasm. So what we have is what Churchill would call the first climax of the war, the Battle of the Marne. It's right in the beginning of the war, but it is what looks like to be the end. In fact, you're not even going to call World War I World War I if it finishes here. You're just going to call it, you know, a great battle between, you know, Russia, uh, Fr Russia, Germany, and France and Great Britain. And yet it's not going to involve much more, but it doesn't end here. And strangely, there's some of us that if you study history, almost wish it did end here. And the Germans just take over France. It might have even been better because then we don't, you know, have the dominoes that fall in so many other areas. But at the same time, Germany is stopped. Germany, which didn't have the best motives, I'm just going to be honest with you, 
And Germany is going to be pushed back, and uh, that's all going to happen in accordance with what Churchill is obviously defining as providence. The fog of war. So in the very beginning of this entire series, my very first message is called The Sinister Unknown, and I talk about the fog of war. In fact, I'm going to do a review because in the very first message that I give, I visit 1917 going into 1918. That's how I started out the series. And you're like, what? What are we doing here? Uh, it, doesn't this start in 1914? Well, actually, it starts a long time before 1914. All the stage that is being set for this battle, uh, this great war in 1914 happens long before that. And so I brought us to this point, which is a very awkward and uncomfortable point in the storyline, where it looks like all hope is lost. And there's a, there's a term that has been used throughout history called the fog of war. And it made a lot more sense. It still exists, and it's still a really good statement because when you're, when you're getting uh, shelled by artillery bomb blasts and machine gun fire is over your head, you can be dizzied. Uh, at one of the final battles that we're just about to get to, they're going to send off 3.5 million artillery shells in the first five days. Okay, now imagine being in a trench and experiencing that around you. 3.5 million artillery shells, and it dizzies you, and you have no sense of balance, no sense of place, you can't remember things. Your world, and then someone comes up to you with a machine gun aimed at you, and you're a prisoner of war immediately. In other words, you can't even fight, and that's exactly, it stupefies you. But the, the fog of war is this concept of you go out, and you get this commission on a map, and you see it on a map, and then you go out, and then bombs start going off, and bullets are flying, and you can't tell which way is which. You're just like out there in a field or in a forest. You don't know where your, uh, I was gonna say teammates, <laughs> where your fellow soldiers are and where the enemy is. And you can't see straight, it's a fog. And that's a very common thing. This is before radio communication. You didn't know where your uh, participating soldiers were, where the other army that was supposed to meet you at a certain time was, that's historically known as the fog of war. And I could say, welcome to Christianity. When you're a believer and you're moving forward in this battle, bomb blasts go off around you and you can be dizzied. And it's like, you know that truth, but you right now, you can hardly remember it. And you know that God is supposed to be here and you know that he, you, you've been working on memorizing that scripture that when this happened, you would repeat it. And yet you feel dizzy and you can't quite grasp it. And this is part of the battle. And yet this is the part of the battle which defines us as a soldier more than any other. When you get to that dizzy spot, pause and remember. Remember the one in whom you trust. Remember the one in whom you believe. The devil wants to create that fog around you and create confusion and to distort the, th the, the thoughts that you have. Hold on to what is true. Fix your feet upon rock, and do not be shaken in that moment. So here's a d definition of the fog of war. Uncertainty amidst the battle, soul dizziness, battlefield disorientation, mental blur. Where am I? Where are my allies? Where is my enemy? Who is stronger in this battle? What are my odds of actually winning this thing? When you start to panic, you run. Okay, it's a, it's a very common behavior of a soldier when you start to panic and the enemy starts to show himself strong, and the enemy works in sleight of hand and, and mirrors, and he wants to get you to think that he's bigger than he is, that he is the victor, that he has you right where he wants you. And if he can get a Christian to run, I mean, that's, that's, 
That's a great accomplishment for the enemy, and he loves it and boasts about it in hell. And in the first episode, I called it the sinister unknown, because that's what the message was called, and that's what the message was about. So in 1917, we have two punch-drunk fighters, neither expected to still be fighting. This war was not supposed to go on like this. You've got to be kidding. We're still fighting a war in 1917? Wars lasted a day uh, back in the, you know, maybe a week, maybe two weeks. You know, they don't last years. And so this is a new, this is called the invention of modern warfare that we're entering into. So Kaiser Wilhelm, in August of 1914, as he's saying goodbye to his troops, as he's sending them off to invade neutral Belgium, he says, you'll be home before the leaves fall from the trees. That's his perspective, and that was everyone else in the world's perspective, too. And then we go to the other side, Joseph Joffre, the French commander-in-chief, still in August 1914, they, they don't have metal caps when this starts. And so they have cloth caps. In fact, they're red and these cloth red caps are great targets uh, for the enemy uh, to shoot at. And so tons of French are going to die simply because they don't have helmets and the caps that they do have are red. Okay, this is like a very bad idea. And the French refused to camouflage because that was not courageous. And it's like, um, you may want to rethink that one. Uh, but don't bother to send the metal helmets, says Joffre. They'll never reach the troops before the war is over. Well, the war wasn't going to be over in two months like these guys thought. And, but no one was prepared for a long war. So two and a half years later, as we're cresting into 1917, which is right when the Zimmerman telegram is taking place, that's when uh, Germany is releasing its U-boats, that's when the Russian Empire is beginning to stagger and the February Revolution is taking place. So this is all happening two and a half years into this conflict. Ernest Shackleton, if you ever heard of Ernest Shackleton, is out, out in Antarctica. He's missed the whole war. When he started, they were going to war, you know, but he didn't expect that this was going to continue like anyone else. And so they stagger into some whaling station up in Antarctica. And uh, what did they expect to hear? So Ernest Shackleton says, tell me, when was the war over? And Shackleton's benefactor, we don't know the guy's name, but his quote is famous throughout history. The war isn't over. Millions are dead. Europe is mad. The world is mad. All right, so we up to speed where we're at now. That's like a great summary of all the, the war. The world is beginning to crack under the pressure. So momentous event number one, Germany cracks. You see, and to call it a crack is actually a really good statement because if Germany could just hold themselves together and not release the U-boats, the Americans won't enter. However, they can't help themselves. They have to destroy Great Britain, and they, they need to, they're going to risk getting America in by doing this. And of course, it is going to create the domino uh, fall that does do that. So that's January 31st, 1917. And we have another momentous event, uh, the February Revolution, which happened in March. But uh, Russia cracks. Their 300-year-old Russian dynasty crumbles. Nicholas II is going to abdicate. The Kerensky government is going to come in. This is destabilizing the world. Everything is like up for grabs. And then we also have, I'm going to say America cracks. Even though it's not cracking in the wrong sense, America had a clear foreign policy all the way since George Washington, and that is we do not fight foreign monsters. Let Europe fight its own wars. We do not get engaged in them. And a lot of America still is held to this throughout all of World War I. 
and the Zimmerman telegram is going to turn the apple cart. And suddenly, America is going to rise up and say, we need to fight. And so now, United States declares war on Germany. This is going to be, all of these are like a ram that are being led into a, into a thicket and getting his horns caught at the perfect time. So in this situation, when you're looking at world war, you could say, who is in control? Because it looks like a melee. It looks like total chaos. And yet, does God lose control even though the nations of the earth have lost control of themselves? Because this is ridiculous. No one can actually uh, sue for peace right now. There is no way to get peace because all sides are too proud and they would rather fall to pieces inwardly than show any weakness outwardly. And you see Russia fall to pieces that way. That's actually how Russia is going to fall apart. But France is hanging in the balance. France cannot stand hardly a bit longer. The, you know, the only thing that's going to get France to stand back up, you know, after being knocked down in the, in the boxing ring, is hearing that America declared war. And then suddenly, like, okay, we need to hang on a little more. So what if, what if America doesn't declare war? What if that event doesn't happen? France may not get back up. And so, so many factors are coming into play to actually carry this war to its end. Winston Churchill says it this way, the beginning of 1917 was marked by three stupendous events. The German declaration of unlimited U-boat war, the intervention of the United States, and the Russian Revolution. Taken together, these events constitute the second great climax of the war. The order in which they were placed was decisive. If the Russian Revolution had occurred in January instead of in March, or alternatively, if the Germans had waited to declare unlimited U-boat war until the summer, there would have been no unlimited U-boat war and consequently no intervention of the United States. If the Allies had been left to face the collapse of Russia without being sustained by the intervention of the United States, it seems certain that France could not have survived the year and the war would have ended by a peace by negotiation, or in other words, a German victory. Had Russia lasted two months less, had Germany refrained for two months more, the whole course of events would have been revolutionized. In this sequence, we discern the footprints of destiny. Uh, do you guys just see my, my title to this message here? In this sequence, we discern the footprints of destiny. Either Russian endurance or German impatience was required to secure the entrance of the United States, and both were forthcoming. In other words, everything is actually going to happen in the most perfect way to actually overturn Germany. Germany should have won this so many times, and there's almost no explanation of how they're going to lose it. They have such limited resource. They're just one nation, and they can't pull in from all the other nations. And even their allies, I almost want to say it this way, stink. Austria-Hungary is uh, the most pitiful ally you've ever had in any war. They're constantly getting themselves in scrapes. Things that the Germans say, don't do that, and then they go and do it. And then they say, hey, Germans, could you rescue us? Could you send troops down here to take care of us? And then uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, what, what, what was the statement? It's like being uh, manacled or being uh, yeah, manacled to a corpse. It's like that's the way they felt. They were like, stuck with a dead man uh, next to them somehow, and they were like, they can't get away from them. That's their allies. So Germany is a, one very impressive country. That's one, one thing I can say. However, their motive is still off. And so what you're going to see is God is going to preserve something in history by dealing with Germany, even though Germany should have won this so many times. Back and forth, back and forth. 
the, the momentum back and forth. That's why the punch drunk fighters is one of the best ways of, of thinking about it. It's like they, they can hardly stand. If you've ever seen one of those boxing movies, you know, where, where they, they punch and the, the other guy is like this, and they, then one guy leans against the ropes and the other guy's leaning on the other side. That's the way it is. I mean, it is, it's like, who's going to fall? And so back and forth, you see these big blows come. Momentous event number four, the breakthrough at Caporetto. So this is the end of 1917. This is right at the time of the October Revolution. But what you see down in Italy is the central powers or Germany and Austria-Hungary are going to break through in the mountains of Switzerland into Italy. And this is like a momentous thing that is going to shift the balance of the war right here. It's like, whoa, we just broke through a Western Front line for the first time. Momentous event number five. Then the Allies in the Middle East are actually going to break through and win over the Ottoman Empire and actually take Jerusalem. It's a huge event in history, right? I'm not even going into it. Uh, but that's going to swing, and that's just one month later. And then momentous event number six. Well, do you remember that October Revolution? You remember a guy named Vladimir uh, Lenin who's going to take over, and now it's called the Soviet Union? Well, Russia pulls out, well, the Soviet Union now, pulls out of the war. Well, imagine how the Allies feel about that. And you know that Germany now has over a million soldiers that they can throw into the Western Front. And they have over, what, 3,000 guns that they can move to the Western Front. This puts all the momentum into Germany's hands now. Whew, this is a dark day for the Allies. America, get over here! But America has to train their soldiers. America had a standing army of about 25,000. And now, I mean, in the first, what was it? In the first three months, they're going to have 10 million men sign up to be trained. 10 million. By the time the war is over, they have 25 million soldiers signed up and ready to be trained in America. So don't you feel pretty good? It's like I just burst a button right there as I was talking about it. It's like... Let's go, guys. I mean, this is an impressive thing, but America takes a while to get its game on, okay? They could declare war, but they're not ready for war. And so we're still training troops, and we're just now sending them over. They're going to be arriving in April of 1918. Well, March, we need to hurry up because Germany is going to begin to hit on the Western Front with all its power, and all they need to do is break through, and this war is over. Oh, no. Welcome to 1918, the year of desperation. So here's our guy, Eric Ludendorff, which <clears throat> uh, I, I hope I don't look like that. Uh, you know, when I take a picture, I should do my own picture of Eric Ludendorff, and I should stand like that and just see how, how it comes out. He's a very stern guy. But this, he's in charge of all the military operations right now, and he says, we must strike at the earliest moment before the American, Americans can throw forces, strong forces into the scale. We must beat the British. And so he is going to launch what's called Operation Michael. It is called the final card. This is what they know. They have to win it. They have to win it now, and they're going to put everything into this. Ludendorff's final card, Operation Michael, March 21st, 1918. In other words, you could just see it before the Americans get their game on. Before they get into action mode, let's take them out. So this is, I'm calling this an imaginary quote. This is actually what he did, but I'm putting it into a quote just to summarize it. So it's an imaginary quote in March. Call the very best from the army. Bring me the strongest. I'm putting them at the front. We are building a fist made up of Germany's stoutest. They're called stormtroopers. Isn't that an interesting term? 
and they're going to be at the front and they're going to hit with their best soldiers, they're going to break through. And guess what? It's going to work. It is going to work. And this stalemate is suddenly going to shatter. And right at this crucial time in history, it looks like the Germans have the allies on the ropes. In fact, the allies are laying down and the, and the ref's like, one, two, three. It's like, no, and the music's swelling. It's like, God, get up, get up, get up. March 23, 1918 is declared a national holiday in Germany by the Kaiser. This is how confident it looked the Germans had it won. You know, as the, as the ref is counting in slow motion, you know, five, six. You know, and the music is, you know, you look and you close up on the, the boxer's face and he's like, you know, his eye is twitching, his, his cheek is, you know, swollen with uh, blood. And, I mean, it's a bad situation, right? It's, here's Kaiser Wilhelm. It's all but over. We won. Okay, now, this is our Christian life right here. There are moments when you feel this, where it feels like the enemy has a victory. And it doesn't make any sense. It's like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus is sick, but Jesus gives a promise. The sickness will not end in death. But then, ah, what do you say? I mean, he, he's dead. And it sure does look like God failed us. It sure does look like death won. And yet these are the moments that define our soul. Do you know who is in control in that moment? Do you know who is the victor? And the British Empire, it's all but over. We lost. This is how dark it is. Now, if you know the end of World War I, you know that something obviously has to happen here, which I'm not going to go into. However, I want to bait you to recognize this, this, the very purpose of this message is to talk about the footprints of destiny, is to talk about that ram that is making its way up the side of the hill and at the very, right, at the very perfect moment is going to get caught in the thicket. That what has taken place in all the timetable of all of these things where the Americans begin to arrive at just the key moment to turn the tables on all of this. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. You can almost feel it. If, if World War I could be turned into a singular two-hour movie, it would be profound. You can't do that. You always have to take an individual spot in the war. But if you could see it as a whole, you can feel it. You feel the, you know, the, the boxer down on the mat, and you, you're like, get up, get up, get up. And he reaches out and grabs the rope and somehow makes his way up as the other boxers boasting to the crowd, you know, walking out, they're like, yeah, yeah. And then this other guy gets up, you know, and uh, somehow gets in a swing. I mean, how did that work? When staring at defeat, what do you see? You see, this is one of the most crucial dimensions of the Christian life. There are going to be moments in your life where you have to stare at something that looks opposite of what the Word of God has told you. And this is what defines you as a believer. When you are in that seeming defeat, what do you see? The bloody criminal on the tree. Imagine being the Apostle John. And you have walked with Jesus. You have loved Jesus. Jesus has loved you. You have watched him work miracles. You have seen him transfigured. You have heard his words of promise. You know he's the Messiah. But now he's been turned over into the hands of criminals. 
He has been scourged. He has been beaten. There's a crown of thorns pressed down upon his brow. His beard has been ripped out and spittle is on his face. And now he's hanging between two other criminals, naked, mocked, ridiculed. Come on, Jesus. Get your game on. Do something right now. Show them you're God. Don't let them do this to you. Mm -hmm. You see, this is our Christian life right here. How do we walk out this? Do you know that God is doing something even greater in this moment than what you can see? He is defeating all the powers of hell. He is crushing the head of the serpent. He is destroying sin and death. Do you see that in the dark hour? When you would prescribe a different outcome, Jesus, you should just jump down off the tree and punch these guys. Call forth a legion of angels. Bring judgment on all those that would try and bring judgment on you. You're pure and spotless. How could you allow them to do this to you? Christian history in a nutshell, guys. However, we need to recognize that in every seeming defeat is the greatest victory. The blood of the martyrs has always proven the seed of the church. And what looks like defeat is anything but when you have the right glasses on. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. Listen to this line, guys. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known what they were doing, believe me, they would have never participated in that. They got their head crushed in that. What looked like their victory actually was their defeat. Remember that. Sold into slavery, Joseph. So Joseph, I mean, we, if we were counseling Joseph, we would tell him probably to not share his dreams so quickly with his brothers. They didn't seem to appreciate them. Don't feed pearls to swine, right? However, he does, and he's walking around with his coat of many colors, which is definitely not going over very well. And I would probably counsel uh, you know, his dad not to maybe give him one of those coats that's so flamboyant, right? And yet, everything about this, even that very coat is a symbol of the very presence of God. It's, it, our God is clothed in rainbow when he's seen in the scriptures. And so we see it there. We see a deliverer. We see a savior in this man. However, everything is going to go dark first. He's going to be thrown into a pit then lifted out of a pit, sold into slavery. This is a dark day. Even his brothers think he's dead, right? However, God is positioning him just like that ram to be caught in the thicket. He's positioning him exactly where he needs to be. So he gets into Potter's, Potiphar's house. Everything is going well. And then once again, it seems like it goes dark. And he gets positioned now in a prison. Well, who wants to be positioned in a prison? This sounds like a very stinky spot to be positioned. God, I'm sure there's a better way of telling this story. Or do you trust God? Do you trust God when you're thrown into that prison? Do you trust God when even you interpret that's, uh, what was it, the, uh, uh, I know there was a baker and a, what was the other guy, the uh, cupbearer, boy, I couldn't think of that guy, the cupbearer, and he interprets their dreams and then gives them, uh, well, I mean, I'm sure the baker wasn't too appreciative uh, of it, but the, the cupbearer definitely was, and he should remember him, and yet it's at the perfect time, not a minute early, not a minute late, that the cupbearer remembers Joseph. 
Joseph has been positioned in the exact spot that he needs to be in the exact moment for the salvation of Israel. Isn't that incredible? And even though he went through difficulty, God is going to take all of that difficulty and transfer it into a powerful good. And so we even see Joseph himself realizing this. And this is like the principle of everything we're talking about, the footprints of destiny right here. But as for you, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Why did we break down here? And then I have underneath this, watch what my God will do. So I'm going to do my best to share this little story. It's, uh, it's one of my favorites, but you could wonder why I don't know all the details to it. We always joke, we were joking even back in the back, because I asked Nathan, I go, do you remember mount, the mountain range? Do you remember what kind of car that was? And he can't remember either. He said, yeah, Philip, Philip knows. Philip always knows, but Philip just happens to not be here this morning to ask. I think we're in South America, and we're in a mountain range, okay? So that's about as detailed as I can give you. And there's a missionary family that is driving in the mountain range in their car. And I can't tell you what make and model of the car was, and I really wish I could because it's part of the story. But just you put one, an old make and model uh, of a car, and it's sort of maybe a, a dumpier car. It's not the nicest. You know, it's in South America, okay? And so it's, it's probably not that nice of a vehicle, but they're making their way through the mountains, and suddenly the brakes go out. And they're in the mountains on a mountain road. And so they survive this and they end up, you know, off to the side of the, the, the road, stopped, and they're all sort of <sighs> breathing hard, but they're in the middle of nowhere, right? And there's really no way to solve their dilemma uh, in an easy fashion. You can't call uh, for help. It's not like such a thing as a cell phone even back then, uh, let alone a little you know, phone booth uh, in the mountains. So they're in a very difficult situation, but one of the things that Papa Missionary has taught his family is that in every situation, God is in control. In every situation, God supplies what's, what's known as a means of grace. That God has already seen this situation, and he's made provision for it. And so we can rejoice right now knowing that God is in control. And for, for those of us that are listening to the story, we go, amen, amen. However, those of us that are in a story like that, we have to struggle to give the amen to that because we don't want to be in that circumstance. We don't want to need to rejoice in such circumstances. However, the family does. The family praises God and celebrates the fact that God has seen this and God has a solution for them. Very healthy response, I have to admit. And then they decide, well, what are we supposed to do now? So they ask God for wisdom and the best they have is to go looking in the forests. You know, they have sort of like these cliff faces and they're going around and they're looking for something they don't even know what they're looking for, but something, maybe it's a house, you know, someone that can help them. Uh, they don't know, but they're just looking. And they find this pile of brush and they, you know, come up to it and they remove off all the brush and there's a car. There's a car in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of South America and it's the same make and model as their car. In the middle of nowhere, that's why I said it'd be really fun if I could give you the make and model. I can't. Uh, I can't remember that. Uh, but there it is. And so they sort of have this sense of like God's provision, right? That whatever's wrong with their car could probably be solved with this car. And yet, as they start to get in this car, they recognize that everything is taken out of the car. Like it doesn't have anything. It's been stripped completely. And so their original hope of, you know, seeing like being able to solve their problem 
with the parts of this car is suddenly, you know, messed with. And there, you know that, that confusion you can have where you have an initial thought that God is supplying for you and then it doesn't, it seems to fall through. And there's only one part of the car they couldn't get into and that was the trunk. And they're trying their best because it's locked. And, uh, and so finally they break open the trunk and there's a box in there. And it was a box of new brake parts for this exact make and model of car that had been sitting there, they were estimating, for 20 years. And so somehow that car ended up there 20 years earlier, got stripped, but no one could get into the trunk, and so these, this box of brakes, brake parts was been, had been there, set there purposely that many years in advance for this missionary family to see the faithfulness of God in that exact moment. And to me, what I would say is, how are you handling it when your brakes go out in the South American mountains? When that happens to you, do you recognize that God is in control? Do you recognize that this is where you witness the footprints of destiny? That you see his providence, that you see his care, that he has seen your circumstances before you got there and he has made supply. Do you trust him? How big is your God? Allow him to be as big as he says he is and allow him to show you his faithfulness. So when you end up in that moment where your brakes go out and you end up surviving on the side of a road going, <laughs> first thing you need to remember, God is in control. Watch what my God will do. God has seen this situation, and he has made provision for it. And he's not going to do it. I could just see you. Next time you have a problem with your car, it's like, okay, you start wandering in the woods looking for a car of your exact make and model, and then you try and check the trunk. He never does it the same way twice. And so what you want to do is be inspired by his faithfulness, and don't get caught up in the specifics of how he does it. Just know he always does it. So here's, we're going to finish with this. It's the March 1st uh, entry of Streams in the Desert. Uh, for those of you that have never encountered Streams in the Desert, it's probably arguably my favorite devotional. It's hard because my utmost first highest is fantastic. And Morning and Evening with Charles Spurge is also fantastic. But this is probably my favorite. Uh, Lottie Kalman, uh, whatever she went through in her life, she suffered a lot. And you could tell, but she triumphed in it because that's what streams in the desert is. It's streams in the midst of desert. And so I love reading that. And there's been seasons in my life where it's just like every time I open, it's like, which obviously means I've suffered a lot too because I really relate with everything she says. Now listen to this. In light of everything we've covered so far, often God seems to place his children in positions of profound difficulty, leading them into a wedge from which there is no escape contriving a situation which no human judgment would have permitted had it been previously consulted. The very cloud conducts them thither. You may be thus involved at this very hour. It does seem perplexing and very serious to get to the last degree, but it is perfectly right. The issue will more than justify him who has brought you hither. It is a platform for the display of his almighty grace and power. He will not only deliver you, but in doing so, he will give you a lesson that you will never forget and to which in many a psalm and song in after days you will revert. You will never be able to thank God enough for having done just as he has. So 
Some of you may not fully believe that yet because you haven't seen or allowed God to show himself faithful in your crises. I can testify that there have been many, a psalm and a song in after days that I have reverted. There's been songs that I have written in those dark hours that I have sung many, many times over the years because they enunciate the most precious things in my life to me. And here's what's interesting. I would say that my greatest growth has taken place in those moments of my life. In fact, comparatively to the other moments of my life, it's probably like 98% of all my growth as a Christian has happened in the darkest, most challenging moments of my life and not in the easier moments. In other words, these are the opportunities to squeeze, to hold on to, and to say, Lord, this is what I've been praying for. I've been praying that I could grow strong. Well, this is your opportunity. Allow God to show himself true. Father, I pray that as we face the fog of war, as we face the challenges of life, as we experience our breaks going out, and we sit on the side of the road wondering, why am I here? Lord, I pray that you would show yourself faithful and true, that you would lead us with your wisdom and that you would demonstrate your providence. Lord, that you would show us that you have led that ram up to that thicket to be caught by his horns at that moment in our life too. Lord, first and foremost, may we see that in the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ. In the perfect time, in the fullness of time, he was crucified for us. But Lord, you have also made provision in every other area and arena of our lives. And I pray that we would cherish that afresh today and walk in the reality of it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.